Hello, listeners. This is David Blakesley, host of the Criterion Reflections podcast, welcoming you to episode 116, in which I and my guests will be talking about Jacques Demy's The Pied Piper from 1972. And just a brief word of introduction, if you're one of those uh, rare souls out there who's just surfing around the internet looking for a conversation about the Pied Piper, well, you've come to the right place. And uh, the little scheme behind this podcast is that we are working our way very slowly and methodically through the Criterion Collection and all of the related films to that uh, very venerable brand um, in the chronological order the films were originally released. So this is season four of this podcast. Uh, it started off as a blog in 2009, and then in, when they got to the year 1969, I started making it into a podcast, and here we are a few years later talking about Criterion-affiliated films from 1972. And for those of you who are deeply versed in the Criterion Collection, you might be ready to tell me, but David, the Pied Piper is not a Criterion Collection film, even though Jacques Demy has a very beautiful box set and is very much a Criterion-worthy director. The Pied Piper uh, only has the most tenuous of links to the Criterion Collection. It did appear on the Criterion Channel back in 2018 when the Criterion Channel was still kind of a sideline of Filmstruck, that uh, late and dearly lamented streaming service that uh, I guess kind of cleared the way for the Criterion channel to become its own standalone thing. So even though the connections are very, very slim, very tenuous, uh, I do consider this a Criterion film, and I'm really happy that we have a chance to talk about it because I think there are just so many fascinating things to be, uh, you know, just to be considered uh, in this uh, kind of underappreciated work of Jacques Demy kind of as he was bitten to his fallow years after the uh, great successes that he's most famous for in the 1960s. So we'll have a lot more to say about the movie in just a few minutes, but first let's go ahead and introduce our panel. We've got a really excellent lineup tonight. I'm really looking forward to hearing what our guests have to say about this film. So let's start with a voice that's probably familiar to longtime listeners, uh, William Remmers. William, welcome back. It's nice to talk to you again. Thanks for having me, David. Yeah, you know, I was just looking at the archive and I noticed that the last time you were on was in May of last year. Uh, we talked about Buck and the Preacher, uh, Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte. And I think you and I have a little bit of a Sidney Poitier street going there. So I'll have to definitely get you on the next time one of Sidney's films come up. Of course, he passed away last year. Uh, a sad event, uh, but a great occasion to commemorate a, a, a really wonderful career and, and a personality and, and really so much more. But I just wanted to ask you, William, how you been? Uh, I mean, we cross paths on social media every so often. You got a great Instagram game going there. Uh, but uh, how's life treating you these days? Oh, everything's fine. I Nothing nothing bad is happening uh, that is any, any worse than what I see outside of my home. So, um, yeah. Things are chipper. Things are good. Uh, I just uh, aged up a year a few days ago into the new uh, age that I am now. Feels pretty much the same, but always a good time to take stock and compare where was I last year when I reached my birthday. And um, yeah, things are good. Things are good. I, I like tra uh, tracking my life through my appearances on this show as well, because I also am starting a Demi streak with this film because um, I was with you for Donkey Skin. Yeah, and that's right. We'll hope to come back for uh, the slightly pregnant man when when that comes around. So, uh, very happy to be talking about our our boy Jacques Demy. That's right. Yeah, we talked about Donkey Skin, and I remember you had some good things to say about this movie 
when we talked about that, when I listened to part of that episode and definitely eager to pick up the conversation where we left off there talking about Demi's kind of mid to later career. Uh, let's go ahead and introduce our next guest. This is a guy who's been on here one time before, and I think William, you were part of that episode as well, but Robert Chaffee, welcome back to the show. Nice to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be back. I had such a good time the last time with Fiddler uh, on the Roof. Thank yeah, we talked about Fiddler on the Roof, another one of those kind of, you know, one and done criterion linkages there. The Criterion Channel put Fiddler on the Roof as one of their sat- Saturday matinee specials. And Robert, I have to say, I think he kind of stole the show on that episode. You just had so much incredible uh, lore and history from the, you know, the, the Broadway musicals and just your long affiliation with the theater. And, uh, you know, just really, that does stand out as one of my very favorite episodes just because it was... So unexpected. We just had such a great time uh, hearing some of your stories and just all of us together kind of pitching our thoughts about that really classic and, and, and beloved musical. So um, yes, really eager to have, yeah, and really eager to gear, hear your thoughts on this one too. Uh, this seems to be a film that you, you know, were drawn to want to talk about and uh, really looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Well, thank you. And yeah, very much so. And then Dan Humphrey. Dan, uh, this is your first time on the podcast. You and I have crossed paths on social media as well. I think we became Facebook friends maybe a couple years ago. And uh, I'm really delighted to have you. And since you're kind of a first-time guest, I'm going to give you a chance to introduce yourself, talk a little bit about uh, what you've done and how you want to kind of let our listeners know who you are and what you're all about. Sure. Uh, Thanks, David. And uh, hi, guys, Uh, Robert and William. I'm really happy to be here. I love Jacques Demy, and I love uh, the Criterion collection and the Criterion channel and uh, was really excited when you asked me to appear on your podcast. Uh, I've loved film since I was old enough to go see the Pied Piper in the theater. (laughs) Wow. Uh, I was six years old, six or seven when it came out, Uh, even though I did not see it then, but I've loved the movies since I was a very little kid and ran a movie theater in my basement when I was 15 years old, back when you'd run old Super 8 movies through a tiny mm. little toy projector, and eventually wound up as a film professor. Uh, I teach at Texas A&M University. I'm an associate professor of performance studies and film studies here in College Station, Texas, and uh, I focus on European art cinema for the most part, uh, also a little bit on American independent cinema, uh, queer cinema, uh, authorship studies, you know, what can you glean about uh, uh, a film author by watching uh, films in a row, which is right up the alley of uh, going through the Demi films as you've been doing. So, uh, so again, I'm just happy to be here. Um, my two books, one of them is on Ingmar Bergman, and one of them is on uh, Pier Paolo Pasolini. And in both of them, I kind of focus on like the queer sides of those filmmakers' work. And so, uh, you know, Demi has also you know had a queer following over the decades. And at some point in about 10 years ago, people started openly acknowledging he was bisexual. So there's a lot of 
uh, academic work being done on kind of that side of his personality and how that comes out in his films. Yeah. I've been reading a lot of that over the last couple of years. I like to assign his films in my classes. Well, that's fantastic, and and definitely, I, I love the academic background. We've got uh, you know people who've done theater. Uh, William, of course, is a, a singer, an opera company director, and uh, Robert, you you have a pretty extensive history of of uh, theatrical production as well. So, uh, and you know, Jacques Demy as a director is certainly pretty well known for um, visually and and musically stimulating works that are just really full of incredible detail, uh, fluid camera movements, uh, set design, uh, as well as uh, themes that are both romantic and uplifting and and kind of uh, inspiring. But also there's that little darker tone that kind of lingers around the edges and then sometimes hits you pretty hard right between the eyes. So complex figure definitely uh, gives us lots and lots to talk about. So I'm going to kind of just do a little introduction uh, of this film and and uh, just kind of start getting the conversation going as we contemplate what was it that brought Jacques Demy into this particular production. Uh, the Pied Piper uh, is a film that I would say is fairly obscure, uh, especially in comparison to, you know, The Umbrellas of Schurberg, uh, The Young Girls of Rochefort, and, and all the other films are, are in that, you know, really lavishly, you know, packaged uh, Criterion box set. That is kind of, I guess, his his big contribution to the Criterion Collection in physical media form. Uh, William mentioned a slightly pregnant man, which is, I think, the next film he made after this, which has been a longtime staple of the Criterion Channel's streaming only library. But this one here um, is it is currently available. You can find it on Amazon Prime Video as a rental. You can buy a streaming copy for about ten bucks. But the Kino Lorber Blu-ray, which I think a few of us might be watching uh, as our more recent copies, uh, that's been out of print for a couple of years, and it's not necessarily a film that I, I expect to see back in print anytime soon. Um, it's it's a movie that is kind of an odd, um, a hard one to categorize. You know, you really can't pigeonhole it. It it seems to be marketed almost as a children's movie. The, the poster, which you'll see on the show notes on the website, is this kind of rainbow-colored illustration of Donovan. It looks kind of charming and fantastical in that early 70s sense, almost a little Peter Max-ish style. Uh, but the movie itself has some pretty dark notes and uh, you know some pretty disturbing uh, imagery and and uh, you know kind of a kind of a grim theme when it's all said and done. Uh, so how, how did Jack Demi wind up doing this project? And, and maybe before we get to answering that question, let's just talk about the Pied Piper itself. This is a story based on the medieval German legend, uh, fairly familiar. It was kind of canonized of sorts by the Brothers Grimm. It's been adapted in various literature and, and stage and musical productions, theatrical productions, uh, you know, including Disney cartoons, etc., uh, the story is about a mysterious figure who pops into Hamlin Town one day. The town is overrun by rats. He uh, he offers to rid the town of his rats if he's paid a thousand guilders. The uh, townspeople, or the, the city elders, I guess you would say, um, encourage him to go ahead and do that. He plays his music. He lures the rats into the river. They drown. And then they renege on their promise to pay the Pied Piper the money that they owed him. 
And so he gets his revenge by playing music that lures the children away one morning. And he takes 130 of them into a mysterious hole in the mountain where the children are never seen again. Uh, there's an interesting backstory. Maybe we'll get into the literary subtext and, and the, uh, the cultural history of this legend a little bit later on. But that's the story that has been adapted for this film. Um, who'd like to take the first shot at kind of speculating if, or maybe you've done some research as to how did Jacques Demy wind up on this project? Uh, Donkey Skin was his previous work. Uh, maybe that had something to do with it. But uh, anybody have some thoughts as to how Demy got associated with this, uh, with this particular story? Well, I read that he was approached you know, by the production company uh, the, uh, based on the success of Donkey Skin. And uh, in the research I found, uh, Demi uh, loved this film, I mean, loved this um, story ever since childhood. But I think what was going on, he was entering in a darker period of his life and career. Mm-hmm. And the marketing is so different from what the film is. He's very faithful, I think, to the original story. And, uh, and then it was kind of ironic that it comes out a year after The Devils. I see so many parallels between this film. Yeah, so yeah. Much, even the imagery in the beginning. And you know what you're in for from the, from the credits behind uh, when they show you the uh, the background of the set of the burning of the saint. It's uh, part of the traveling uh, performer's uh, caravan. You know you're in for something very different. So there's the poster of having Donovan and then the uh, the inscription, let Donovan take you away. And then if you go on the <laughs> yeah. uh, review for the, uh, for the um, DVD, there's a poster that later on Paramount released it again as part of the family matinee series, which yeah. <laughs> so you know, out of step with what uh, what the film really is. So I think the film uh, really um, summarizes a lot of his style and his concerns in the last part of his career. As he got closer to the end, his films became uh, darker, especially when you get to a room in town, that musical tragedy. Mm-hmm. So I think this is like mm-hmm. a good uh, uh, prelude you know, to that to that period. Yeah, yeah, I think that's pretty insightful because you're right. This does feel like Demi is entering. You know, he he was a screenwriter. He he did contribute to the development of this story. Um, William, I know you had mentioned in in your you know in our conversation about Donkey Skin from a couple of years ago now. Uh, you know, you 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 felt that this film succeeded. Uh, the Pied Piper succeeded in ways that Donkey Skin didn't quite. You you had a I guess a mixed verdict might even be generous uh, for your thoughts about Donkey Skin. Tell me just a little bit about what is it that you felt the Pied Piper, you know, uh, proved to be so successful? I was trying to figure that out today. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, okay. Because, well, so I saw this movie in 2018. So when we were talking about Donkey Skin, I hadn't seen it. I've only seen it the one time, but it had a very strong effect on me in 2018, I remember. And watching it again today, I was trying to get myself in that frame of mind. And I just wondered why I, I still think that um, it's it's very obviously visually the closest to donkey skin as of anything. Um, but I, I see it, it feels more apart from his filmography than it did when I watched donkey skin somehow. I guess watching donkey skin after Pied Piper I'm able to look back on it in a different way than seeing Pied Piper after Donkey Skin. So some somehow I've I I was glad to hear your uh, recap of what I said, but I don't entirely understand 
what my opinion was. <laughs> uh, but I, I do really, I yeah. do really like this film. I think, um, I think I do appreciate its, its darkness and its grit. I, uh, I think a, an in for me uh, was unlocked when you shared the link to an article that was on the TCM website. And you can find there dating back to when the film was first released on DVD. And the person there suggested a double feature with Ken Russell's The Devils. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, that makes total sense to me in, in, in a strange way. And also, I do see a very direct relationship to the films of Richard Lester, not the least of which uh, because of Roy Kinnear's presence and just the general sort of um, comedic energy and darkness that I see in films like Robin and Marion. Uh, also, as Michael Horton, who you see in um, Funny Things. So there's, there's something about this film that does... Um, enrapture me perhaps because it's it's trying to it's fun trying to find the demi inside of it because maybe from an outside perspective without seeing that credit it might be one of his films that you'd be least likely i mean model shop for similar reasons the two english language films he did are going to obviously come across as the least like the rest of his films and i don't want to jump to that conclusion too quickly um, but I think, you know, that with Michelle Grand's score in Donkey Skin, it's very easy to see that the Demi uh, verve, this, this film has such a different energy and the music is much more reminiscent of something like looking again slightly forward, John Barry's score to Robin and Marion, Richard Lester film, which mm-hmm. is set in medieval times and is quite a dark take on a, on a tale that, or like a, a alternate ending to a tale some people already know. Um, so I find that in as like thinking of it as almost this international co-production films, partially on location in, in Germany as well, where there's a, a lot to dig into and to uncover what it is about what it is about to me that that you can find evidence of in the film. Uh, I think Donkey Skin is a very useful comparison point uh, as far as like it feels like an apples and oranges argument if I said that one fails where the other succeeds or vice versa, because they seem like they have such different aims that that's a very, um, I think I was probably happy to just ruffle some donkey feathers or something, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. Okay. Well, Daniel, you and I were talking before we started recording, you know, you, you had already kind of said a few things about uh, your awareness of, of Demi's contributions to the development of this story. You want to maybe just kind of, kind of pick it up from there or just talk a little bit about your your understanding of how Demi came in to a production that was apparently already somewhat underway the, the producers had a concept that they wanted to pursue and then Demi came in and kind of sort of as William said kind of put his touches in the middle of it even though this may not be as purely Demi as as the earlier 60s films right the film started with David Putnam uh, the legendary producer who would later win an Oscar for Chariots of Fire and go on to produce The Killing Fields and The Mission and eventually become head of Columbia Pictures in a uh, somewhat controversial <clears throat> reign at that studio, which uh, did not quite go as well as his producing career prior to that. But in the 1970s, he was building his reputation as you know something of a maverick producer who really believed in working with strong directors who you know maybe come out of kind of the art cinema world to some extent i know in the 1980s he would go around hollywood and talk about 
how great Itzvan Szabo was, the Hungarian filmmaker, and say, we're bringing him to Hollywood. And apparently people in Hollywood were like, you know, what are you talking about? You know, how do you pronounce that name? How's that spell? It was like, Itzvan Szabo from Hungary. So, so he was really known for finding filmmakers with strong voices and, and you know, giving them some measure of control. And when he hired Demi, he you know, let him uh, take a crack at the script, which uh, had existed in a, uh, a rough draft already. And one of the most interesting things I found out about that is that the character who you say, David, is, is the heart and soul of the film in a way, and I agree, the character of Milius, uh, played by Michael Horton, that character was barely in the first draft of the script. Uh, you know, he might have even been just kind of mentioned without actually being seen on screen in terms of the first draft of the script. Uh, and one of Demi's major contributions to the screenplay was, you know, essentially making him a main character, which, you know, brings with it a lot of really interesting, trenchant political content right yes uh, yes film very much is dealing with the the treatment of outsiders in a corrupt and violent society uh you know, the whole kind of band of vagabonds who come into the town of hamlin represent outsiders of one sort or another and within the town itself you have the young disabled boy uh, played by Jack Wilde, Gavin, who is the protege of the the Jewish uh, uh, mystic, I guess you would say, but also a representative of early science at the time. Who yes, right. Is trying to understand the Black Plague, which has broken out recently, in what you know was that era's equivalent of the scientific method. He was trying to understand it not as the wrath of God or some sort of curse on the people. And and so the film deals with, you know, in a way, the counterculture of the 70s, uh, the late 60s and early 70s, while also kind of looking back at the Holocaust to a certain extent, right? The last lines uh, on screen in the film kind of allude to uh, you know, the violent suppression of outsiders and uh, talking about how they, you know, have been killed across history. Uh, and I don't have written down here exactly what those lines are, but, but something about, you know, it's been going on for centuries uh, and reached its most horrific climax in our own century, the 20th century. So he's clearly alluding to the Holocaust in that last on-screen uh, title card there at the very end before they play mm-hmm. the, the credits. And, you know, I just think that's really interesting. It kind of points to the political nature of the film uh, and the way that it ties in with a lot of really interesting concepts. Well, yeah, and this was a very specific choice because the original historic 
Pied Piper tale comes from the year 1280, the end of the 13th century. And uh, the opening title card mentions a specific day, Midsummer Day in 1347, which is the year that the Black Plague actually opened up. Did a little bit of researching there and the Black... Go ahead. Oh, sorry. It's... 1349 is what it says. Was it 1349? Okay. I couldn't. Because that is kind of right in the middle of the Black Plague. Right. Okay. 1346 to 1352. Mm -hmm. And 1349, the year in which this film is set, was the year in which Christians in Germany massacred Jews by the thousands, blaming them for the Black Plague. Okay, so this was, yeah, very specifically targeting uh, a historic event. Uh, so it, it really does very quickly and determinedly take us out of the realm of whimsical children's fairy tale, right? It, which is something we could easily think the Pied Piper, especially putting Donovan front and center with all of his hippie, flower child, minstrel, mystics, uh, you know, groovy thing going on there. Um you know, that is a way of appealing and tapping into that counterculture. Robert, you quoted the tagline, let Donovan take you away, far away. Well, far out, man, this is going to be a trippy movie. Uh, that's kind of maybe what you might have been expecting uh, in 1972, even though Donovan was a little bit past his prime. I think of him more as like a 66 through 68, you know, was well, kind of his peak there. Go ahead, Robert. A few years before this, in 1968, I think it was, he released an album from a flower to a garden, and there's a yeah. song in there uh, about the. It seems to be about the Pied Piper, the minstrel and his message, mm -hmm. uh, where he lures uh, he lures people, but the adults in the town don't want to listen to his song, but the children do. So in a way, right. in theory, you know, it was like a good idea for casting. Whether he was able to actually fulfill it, you know, it's a different topic. But he was like a maybe a logical choice for this figure. What's so bizarre is that. He's such a peripheral figure, though, in the film itself. You know, he's barely in it. Yeah, uh, the yeah, moral, yeah. the moral of the, the moral conscience of the film is really in in um, Michael Horton's character. He's the moral center of the film, and mm -hmm. he's one of the few adults outside of the men's traveling actors who are, you know, likable, credible adults. All the others are so villainous and corrupt. Oh, and, more yeah, than the, yeah. and more than the political side, I think the film is really going after the hypocrisy of the Catholic Church. To me, that is what really stands out in mm -hmm. the film. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the cruelty and the sanctimony and the hypocrisy of the, you know, the, the church-state fusion, if you will. Uh, you know, there's a, a, a mayor who's eager to marry off his daughter, who's I think the actress Catherine Harris was uh, 11 years old when the film was made. She looks like she's even younger than that. She's being married off to John Hurt, who was clearly a full-grown man, twice or probably almost maybe three times her age at that point. And so there's a very disturbing child-bride thing going on here, even though perhaps to the film's credit or out of caution, there's never any indication that the marriage was sexually consummated. In fact, it's kind of played up that she was just kind of a bored spectator of the whole thing. So we're at least spared that horror. But, you know, there is a very 
dark element going on there. Uh, and then there's the bishop and the uh, and the baron who's you know, marrying off his his sons, and and so there's all of this uh, calculation going on to get money to build the cathedral, taxing the peasants to their ruin, uh, all for the sake of building these shiny edifices. And uh, when that outsider, the Milius, the apothecary, the alchemist, uh, the nonconformist, uh, you know, th- that singular voice starts to speak with reason and starts to question some of the dogmatic explanations as to why the plague is a curse of God and that the only real remedy or the only real treatment is is prayer and increased offerings to the church. You're right. Those are, those are pretty, you know, uh, hard and heavy charges, uh, perhaps even a little bit heavy handed and, 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 and so obvious or so blunt, but you know, there, there's clearly, uh, you know, a, a pretty passionate message being delivered there, especially when you relate to the characters who, who do suffer, you know, tangibly, um, on, on screen as a result of the decisions that are made by, by these uh, corrupt power brokers. It's interesting the way the film really manages to construct this narrative around what were the three major power brokers mm-hmm. at this moment in history. The rising bourgeoisie, right, which is represented by uh, by the Burgermeister, mm-hmm. uh, played by Roy Kinnear. Uh, the aristocracy, which, you know, is still very much uh, a power player in Germany at the time and would be for, you know, several centuries to come still, represented by Donald Plessence, you know, who plays the Baron. And then the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And it's like all three of them are trying to manipulate the other two and, you know, kind of uh, collude with the other two in ways that, you know, kind of cement their power. So, you know, I haven't talked to anyone in academia who's like a medieval history scholar, but I would imagine that they would really be impressed with this film for the way that it, you know, deals with these things mm-hmm. in fairly historically accurate ways. You know, there are a few anachronisms here and there, like Donovan's guitar. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> a stage uh, prop there, yeah. Right. Um, um, and apparently that, you know, horrifying headdress that looks like giant horns that uh, uh, Frau Poppendick wears for the yes. wedding. Apparently they plucked that from like two centuries later. Uh, that wouldn't have been, uh, you know, an accurate representation of, a, of clothing in the right. But But for the most part, the film is really historically accurate. and. Uh, and visually, they're building off of uh, Northern Renaissance painters who were mm-hmm. painting at the time. You know, the film uh, looks like a Vermeer painting in, in several. Spots. Yeah, yeah. The the, the impressive uh, clutter, uh, you know, in the apothecary's shop and and the uh, the architecture and and even even the backstory. These cathedrals that are so beloved now and are clearly impressive physical structures and cultural, you know, iconic images and locations and all of that. But you think about the blood and the toil and the oppression that went into their construction, 
and uh, you know you you have to take a sort of a second look at at what price were these great monuments uh, created uh, you know for all their grandeur and all of the you know the power of being inside these magnificent ancient buildings uh, you know a lot of suffering went into their creation now we are you are we've been focusing on some of the darker and, and heavier aspects of this film and they are there uh, but this is not a, a dirge. Uh, there is there is humor. There is at least efforts to lighten things up a little bit here. Uh, we've talked a little bit about Donovan. Uh, I think, Robert, you had mentioned, uh, again, in some of our pre-show chatter, that he had written six songs for the film. I think only yeah. three made the final cut. Tell us just a little bit more about what you know about Donovan's uh, at least attempts to contribute musically to this uh, to this film. Well, in the uh, there's a the press book. I got a copy. I got a chance to look at the press book that was given to theater managers and to advertise the film. And the articles written about the film, there were six songs that are supposed to be in the film. And as we know, there's only three. And besides the six songs, if you go to Donovan's website and click on you know his soundtrack, he wrote six different instrumental themes. So what I think of, what I like about the um, the music of the film is that besides the three songs, I really like the background score that Donovan composed the music for, but it was arranged by Kenneth Clayton. So uh, in concert in 1972, right after the film came out, Donovan uh, did a concert for the BBC, and he does a medley of the songs, and he talks about them. And he said that he just finished making the movie, but uh he wrote a few songs for the film that weren't used, and so that happens all the time. And here's one that they didn't use, and I think they should have. But then he begins to sing a song that's in the film, the Pied Piper song. Mm -hmm. So uh, the Pied Piper song, Sailing Homeward, What a Waste of Time, those are the three songs in the film. I was only able to find one other one called Sometimes I'm Lonely. Now, when you do the research on it online, he only performed it once in concert, so I haven't been able to find hmm. that yet. But if you go to, uh, I watched the film four times, I listened especially to the music, and yeah. there are other tunes besides those three songs in the background score, so I guess the press book was right on that count, that there is instrumental music that he did write that does survive in the original. And and he is given credit for like songs and music composed by Donovan. So it's not like he's just out there to sing his ditties and they gave the soundtrack to somebody else. What do you know about Donovan's um, musical abilities? I mean, I've really honestly only thought of him as a as a singer songwriter, a guy who strums a guitar. Obviously, he put some tunes together. And I grew up on you know the original Donovan's greatest hits LP. You know with jennifer juniper sunshine superman mellow yellow season of the witch you know th those kind of early you know folky you know hippy dippy songs and then you know you got the hurdy-gurdy man and some of the stuff he did the, the gift from a flower to a, a garden that you mentioned also so you know he, he had a, a a decent career but i i've never thought of him as a as a you know a musician kind of in command of the whole orchestra so to speak but uh, tell me a little bit more about your appreciation well, of donovan the musician well in terms of his movie scoring he wrote a couple of uh title tunes for a few other uh films at this time he wrote the title tune for if it's tuesday it must be belgium but oh, most importantly okay. he wrote a beautiful score for brother son sister moon mm. that he didn't really get credit for there's two versions of that film 
the Zeffirelli film we're talking about, right? right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the American version, he gets credit for the song sung by Donovan, but in Italy, they gave the credit to Ritz Ortolani because there's two different versions of the film. In Italy, they use Donovan's songs in the soundtrack, but he doesn't sing them. They're mostly oh, yeah. uh, orchestrated versions, but they give Ritz Ortolani the credit. But Donovan really wrote a dozen songs that are in that film. And, uh, and it's a, I think he does a better job in that than he did in the Pied Piper. I think the three songs in the Pied Piper are okay. But the songs of Brother Francisco Moon are really, really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Some of them are based on actual medieval, um, madrigals and a few of them are original. But taken as a whole, the score for Brother Francisco Moon by Donovan is really, is really gorgeous. But he was so soured by his experience, he refused to allow any soundtrack albums to either the Pied Piper or Brother Francisco Moon. Hmm. Uh, later on, about four or five years ago, he privately uh, re-recorded uh, the Brother Francisco Moon score because so many fans wanted a copy of it. So you can you can get the the, uh, the, the CD, but it's not a soundtrack. He just sings and orchestrates everything himself. And for the Pied Piper, he refused. He wouldn't allow them to have a soundtrack album. Hmm. Well, well, so they they wanted to to they wanted to market that, but he just yeah. said no, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Either of you guys, Daniel or William, have anything you want to say about Donovan? Since we're kind of on the subject, I, I think he's a pretty significant musical figure. I've already kind of said my appreciation for him, but how about you guys? Well, one thing I teach every year when I teach my star studies class, you know, where we look at film stars, but also stars in other uh, mediums. I quote the the scholar Richard Dyer, who says that stars are signifying entities, you know, that they signify something, you know, that you're aware of before you even sit down to watch the movie. You know, if you're plugged into the culture at all in 1972, you know who Donovan is and you know he represents something. Right. right? And and he really did represent kind of the counterculture and the hippie movement. And in 1965, he recorded a song called Universal Soldier. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which uh, He didn't write it. It was a Canadian singer songwriter named Buffy St. Marie who wrote it. Yeah. But it's you know, a very powerful anti-war song. Right. Just as Um, Vietnam was really starting to heat up and and catch the public consciousness, right? Exactly. And and the song basically says, you know, soldiers, put down your weapons. And it actually uh, puts some responsibility on the soldiers. Mm -hmm. Now, like a lot of people would say, well, it's, you know, it's the politician's fault for starting the wars you know, the masters of war as bob dylan right. saying and all that, right? saying, you know there won't there cannot be a war without the soldiers being complicit in it and picking up the guns and shooting them yeah. I mean, the lyrics are very explicit and you know i haven't done research into it but you know it seems to me that that's the kind of song that would have been something of an anthem for people who say in america you know become conscientious objectors or who refuse to serve and go to Vietnam. So, you know, I think today people look at Donovan and think, oh, well, you know, he was just the, one of these people with the, uh, you know, the big poofy late 60s hair and that yeah. all the 
all the young women had crushes on. But, but you know, he was really a strong figure of the counterculture. And so to cast him in that role, where, what does he do at the end, you know, as the Pied Piper, he leads the children away. Yeah. And what were the children about to have done to them? They were going to be conscripted into the army right. by Franz, you know, who says, you know, well, we can, you know, literally draft children to fight in the war. Right. You know, and then he was going to pay them with fool's gold because, you know, he thought that they were too stupid and uneducated to know the difference between real gold and fake gold. So he was going to pay them in, you know, in counterfeit money and send them out to be cannon fodder. Right. And so the fact that Donovan plays this character who, like, seduces them away from this society that wants to throw them into the meat grinder of a war, you know, really fits with with his kind of ideological stance at the time and what he represented uh, within popular culture at the time. Yeah, I mean, because he really was, you know, kind of the epitome of that peacenik flower child, you know, nonviolent, gentle uh you know kind of precious in some ways and and you know while the 60s kind of went and crashed and burned and did their heavier darker thing you know we did the gimme shelter and rolling stones and altamont you know you had the grateful dead out there doing their thing and and a lot of other carryovers from the you know the 60s and and all of that is represented or or what was conjured to the imagination by just uttering those words donovan you know by 72 that kind of hippiedom was was becoming kind of a relic you know and and um you know pop music was moving into glam and and other types of you know you had the, the kind of the la singer songwriter type of stuff coming out but but donovan really never quite got to that commercial peak that uh, that he enjoyed during those years this may have been actually kind of part of his fade out because i don't know that he I mean, sure, he was doing music and stuff throughout the '70s and '80s, and and even into the you know into the current decade, he's still around. I, he's still posting stuff on social media and making music. Robert, it seems like maybe you've you've kept in touch with him a little bit there. A little bit, yeah. What I yeah. find interesting too is that in the film, the Pied Piper doesn't lead the children into a magic land on the mountain. They no. vanish. They just disappear. <laughs> That's right. And I don't even yeah. think he's human because he appears out of nowhere. Yeah. He never eats. He's offered food and drink. He refuses it. Uh, he has some sort of magical powers because uh, when he pipes the children away, the uh, he allows the little girl who had been married to be free. She's been locked away in the right. bedroom. Kind of a miraculous jailbreaks there, right? Exactly. So mm-hmm. he has some. He's some some of other otherworldly figure yeah you're right and gavin he was locked in that dungeon and then all of a sudden the 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 door is open at the top of those steps and the guards are asleep it's there i mean there's almost like a biblical allusion to some of the miracles from the book of acts going on there so yeah it is it is all very remarkable but but in some ways kind of understated you know all the children as, as donovan was leading him away towards the end they're all dressed in white you know which is another kind of symbolic gesture there uh william give me your thoughts on donovan have you ever gotten much into his uh shtick there yeah donovan's so cool yeah and without him i mean i without him this film isn't this film i wonder i, I don't even want to speculate on alternate casting because there's something about the the calm he brings to his performance here mm-hmm. that makes everything else work in, in a way you could imagine a film like this 
with maybe no um, salvation at the end if there was just no Pied Piper that showed up. Just a plague and lots of terror and lots of corruption. But in addition to stars being signifiers, there's also so much uh, signification in us knowing what this story leads to. Your average viewer is going to go in looking at this character who's not particularly pied compared to you know <laughs> yeah. your average pied piper. He's, He's pretty quite... drab, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and but we know, we know going in that not only is this you know magic man Donovan, this is also going to be eventually what rescues. I mean, in some ways, you think of it rescuing. I did read many times into this story of growing up as a kid of it being a very terrifying ending because you were whisked away from your life into who knows where. Um, but I think the climax of this film is maybe my my favorite part, how great to end with what sort of uh, makes the most sense. And without Donovan's consistent sense of calm, I don't know how it would have gotten there otherwise. There's a, a totally separate film happening with these characters that the minstrels drop into. And in a way, like there are in into the into the walls of this city, but we don't really focus on them too much. In fact, um, if there's anything that's flat in the film, it would probably be the portrayal of that traveling troupe in that they're they're good people. They make a fuss when they are inconvenienced in ways they think are not fair, but they are also so nice and welcoming to everyone. They're they're almost so nice that they're kind of a drip. But <laughs> yeah. but you have you have Donovan there as the Pied Piper who who gives them like he's hanging out with them, so we know they're all they're all good people and they're all um on the, the right side. But there is something strange about him. And I think about the scene when he sings his song to Gavin and the camera very slowly circles around him. And he's one of the few characters I feel like we get close to. Uh, I think, I think about the traveling people who pick up a pilgrim early on. And it's not really until that pilgrim is dying that I think we get a pretty good look at his face. I think a lot of this film plays in quite wide uh, angles. Mm -hmm. I think of the scenes in um, the daughter's bedroom when she's sick. And these shots are, are going to play pretty well in a theater, maybe play less well on TV. Uh, but they, they play in pretty long cuts. Um, I think there's also a particularly impressive scene uh, when when Donald Pleasance is in his weird little sleeping hideaway nook. Mm-hmm. And it's a very long take that involves very specific placement of several rats that are obviously placed by crew members when the camera is panned away from them. So there's lots of lots of that, which means you don't really get like up in the faces of anybody too much. But Donovan does get a little bit of a different treatment from the camera. He does get a little more of a lingering close look that allows us to to when he really comes into his own is when he gets the rats to leave. And at no time does he raise his voice about his 1000 guilders. He's he just repeats what he believes he is owed. Mm-hmm. And again, if they're not willing to pay the piper, it's it's sort of riding on the backs of the way he's played this character with that uh, benevolent mystical calm that that comes from somebody who's willing to just sing songs about the way the world works and why it's not worth being upset. Yeah. Uh, to to Gavin and and what's what's so tragic about it too is that Gavin doesn't get to go along with the rest of the kids, perhaps because he's destined to uh, to go to the Netherlands and become a painter, and perhaps because he's not dressed in white. Uh, there, <laughs> yeah. There's there's it's, it seems as if like yeah you have to be like 
it's it's not everybody that gets to go. I guess some of the other uh, minstrel kids are are too old or something because I also noticed all of the kids seem to be exactly the same height, so that the image of them going off looks really even and and quite um, consistent. But uh, it's it's a remarkable performance and comes with so much baggage already. Plus, you see, you know, songs written and sung by Donovan at the at the start of the film. So you're you're given such a a lead over that you wouldn't have gotten if the, it was marketed differently, if it was just some guy. Uh, it's pretty crucial that it is Donovan, and and I think he is absolutely the right fit for for the part. And in fact, I think if it feels like Flower Child symbolism is four years out of date or something at this point, it it feels even more right because there is something about him that's not fitting in with the the greater world around him and how much of a film based on the Pied Piper centers around this bureaucratic squabbling about a cathedral is, is quite funny. The film almost buries the lead of its own title <laughs> yeah. once it gets cooking and then unleashes it. And again, a devil's esque climax at the end with as, as much pain as there is somehow transcendence. Well, and I think it's, it is significant that Donovan's character is pretty chill. You know, I mean, there are other renditions of the Pied Piper where he's, really kind of getting his revenge because he's been, you know, um, bilked out of the money that was owed to him. It doesn't feel like Donovan, Donovan's version of the Pied Piper really cares about the money. In fact, you know, he, he just volunteered. They, they said, Oh, 50,000. No, I only want a thousand. And, uh, and that, and there is historic precedent for these amounts of money. And there's also a historic precedent for a lame child who is was trying to join the children, but was not fast enough to get get into the hole in the mountain before it sealed back up. So that's a little interesting carryover. That's actually how supposedly the town learned what happened. Right. There were a couple children uh, that didn't make it and came back to tell the tale. And one version of it is just the uh, the lame child who you know, can't go walk fast enough to join the rest. And so he mm-hmm. has to go back and say, you know, the Pied Piper took them into the mountain. Yeah. And apparently that was the, the exact wording or, well, I mean, in German, yeah. uh, took into the mountain, which then later became a hole in the mountain. Yeah. But, uh, but in some versions, there are three different children who couldn't go. One was deaf and didn't hear the music. And one was blind and couldn't like see well enough or couldn't see at all and couldn't figure out how to join the rest of them. Right. Uh, but in all of the early versions, there is the, you know, the lame child. Who mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it was an interesting way to kind of honor that detail going back very early in the story. Yeah. Now we've mentioned the devils a few times as a parallel film. I, I guess we, to me, you have to t- mention the seventh seal as well. Obviously, there's many differences between this. But Daniel, you know, you've worked with Bergman. Uh, do you have any thoughts about uh, the plague setting, the itinerant minstrels coming into the town and their covered wagon, all of that type of thing? Uh, what are what are some thoughts we have about uh, you know? Demi's playing, uh, I, I, I think you could say this this family in their wagon, it's almost like an homage to the Seventh Seal. Anybody want to pick up on that thought? Yeah, everything that I've read uh, in terms of scholarly uh, analyses of this film, they all all but call it, you know, Demi's version of the Seventh Seal. 
And in fact, one of the things that makes one think of the seventh seal as a primary influence is that in all of the earlier versions of the Pied Piper prior to this film, the the Black Death is not actually an element. Right? In the in the uh, Robert Browning poem and the Brothers Grimm fairy tale, the rats are a problem because they're biting the children, they're eating the food. Right. But they're just nasty, right? <laughs> they're not spreading disease. Right. Uh, you know, in fact, the original version of the story is set in, as you said before, in 1284. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, you know, it was like 70 something years before the, the plague hit Europe. Yeah. So and that specific is, year lived on for a long time. The citizens of Hamlin would say the year AD and so many years since we lost our children. There was a stained glass window put in one of the churches in Hamlin uh, around the year 1300 when, you know, presumably whatever this historic nugget was, whatever this kernel of truth that's at the heart of this legendary tale seems to have some kind of resonance as something actual that occurred there. There's just so much consistency in the story that this doesn't feel like completely whole cloth fabricated fiction here. Uh, so it is fascinating. And, and there's a link in the show notes if you want to go to uh, the official city website of Hamlin, Germany. Uh, obviously, as you could imagine, the Pied Piper is a pretty big part of their tourist marketing scheme. And they've got festivals and commemorative uh, you know, souvenirs and, and trinkets and all that kind of stuff going on. Um, there's a street where apparently there's no singing or dancing allowed because that's the road that the children disappeared from. And I would imagine they probably take that tradition pretty seriously. So it's a pretty fascinating uh, little relic, if you will, of, of the medieval times that, uh, that has made a lasting impression even to this day. Um, are there any other aspects about the film, the story, the, the narratives? I mean, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there, there are moments of lightness, um, you know, Gavin beyond his, uh, you know, his handicap and, and walking with a, with a crutch. Uh, he's, he's, he's trying to, you know, stoke a little romance with the girl before she gets married. And, and, uh, you know, so there, yeah, and, and, and this is Jack Wilde, uh, he of, uh, the artful Dodger fame and also HR Pup and stuff, <laughs> another fascinating character. Um, he, in fact, I think he actually got top billing. If you look at the uh, credits, uh, he is the first one on the list. Uh, I guess he was a bit of a tiger beat heartthrob or something at the time. So uh, what do I want to say about Jack Wilde? Or we can just kind of riff on the movie itself a little bit more before we you know, move into some other directions. He's the kid around which it all hinges. And mm-hmm. in another film, he would be a, like a protagonist in the truest sense of taking that much screen time. This is really this film almost feels like it doesn't really belong to any one individual, even the Pied right. Piper. Donovan gets that sort of and so and so as so and so credit that's like special, but not necessarily the biggest amount of screen time. Mm-hmm. But because of that, I think the film gets to showcase so many different characters, uh, all of which get to populate its world. The amount of times you see four or five great character actors in the same scene or the same shot or m- make me feel very giddy because many of these people particularly Roy Kinnear uh, are people like that. If I know they're in the film, I will watch the film just because they're in it. Mm -hmm. And 
those associations like help pepper those scenes where they're about kind of kind of nothing like the wedding scenes and the, and the church scenes, which are almost just there to build up the environment. But Jack Wilde gets to really be the, like the driving force in that he has this sort of thwarted romance and it's so bittersweet how that doesn't end up materializing in any way because she is one of the children who goes off with the Pied Piper. Yeah. And so I see, I see, I understand why he gets the, the top billing. He had just gotten plenty of award nominations, uh, best supporting actor nominations for Oliver. So he was, he had a lot of credit from the entire society as an actor. And again, as, as a young star to link with this film, which seems to sort of be uh, publicized as a young person's film or a family film, or uh, is was at some point, uh, as we said, published uh, as a, uh, or exhibited as a family matinee. In a way, I feel like he's, he's a bit of a red herring that we get to follow. And, and, as you mentioned, Milius, Michael Horton's character, whom he's the apprentice of, it gives him someone to talk to. Like it allows those two to have this pretty palpable relationship, which uh, the death of Milius, the burning at the stake, yeah. which uses uses the same fire really close in front of the lens tricks that we see in Passion of Joan of Arc, just to, mm-hmm. to, to really let that heat feel uh, palpably ominous, almost uh, like a martyrdom uh, in our eyes in the name of science. Um, though I do want to take issue. He does seem to have two large tortoise shells and I'm worried that he's not like PETA appropriate as a scientist because <laughs> those two tortoise shells look like they would be endangered. So check out the set design in his laboratory. I'm a bit concerned for what animals he's killed to create his concoctions. But yes. um, that that death scene is quite is quite something as it's intercut with the children's uh, sort of being whisked away. That's all one big climactic sequence uh, and caps everything off quite resoundingly uh, though at the beginning, it does feel like there are a lot of separate threads and given the ahistorical costumes, particularly uh, Donald Pleasance's uh, <laughs> hat, I, yeah. I can't, I can't, Im- I mean, I'm sure there's some a very similitude here and here and there, but uh, there's, there's, it's much more fun to have something that's this stylized, but it is kind of hard to understand who everybody is sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, even seeing it the second time, I, I, I as we were mentioning the, these these three categories of people who are vying for their own interests in the town, uh, it doesn't really matter too much what each one does, probably except for uh, our Catholic friends, because we have such such a great actor peter vaughn who's in who's criterion um uh, sanctified several times over and there's something about that that man uh is the the ideal casting to be in that horrific outfit and there's all you need to see is him flirting with diana doors at the wedding party to understand (laughs) what 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 his real mo is i think another film that one might compare to this is is Pasolini's Canterbury Tales. Which yes, which out. I want to have you on, Daniel, because we haven't gotten to that one yet, but I'd definitely like to tap into your thoughts. But tell us a little bit, give us a preview for that one. Well, it also has this kind of muted color scheme, you know, very much in distinction to The Arabian Nights, which was the Pasolini film that came after, and The Decameron, which came right before, both of which are very colorful and bright and sunny in a way. And uh, the Canterbury Tales is 
is very kind of dark and muted and follows the kind of painterly traditions again of uh, Northern Renaissance painters uh, from the Netherlands, say. But it also has that weird mixture of irreverent humor that is woven into the kind of dark visual palette. I mean, the one thing where I literally laughed out loud was at the wedding ceremony where uh, the guy officiating uh, says, uh, uh, thou has decreed that all wickedness is but little to the wickedness of woman, that her body is filled with vanity and lust, seething with corruption. And it just it's this long, misogynist <laughs> yeah, right. greed about how evil and horrible and lust-filled women are. And then, you know, right in the center of the shot is Catherine Harrison, you know, as this 11-year-old bride. Right. You know, and she, she isn't wanting to get married. You know, it's the men who are forcing her to. And then to add insult to injury, you know, in the wedding ceremony, you know, the... Uh, I guess it's the priest or the archbishop or whatever, you know, talks about how, you know, we beseech thee to grant this wretched daughter of Eve, the origin of all worldly sin, yeah. you know, <laughs> as a poor little innocent 11 year old girl. And, yeah. and so I love the just dark, bitter kind of sense of humor that comes up in this film every once in a while. And it really is, you know, kind of a trenchant social critique right at the time when, you know, in the new Hollywood, and in a way this film is part of the new Hollywood. It was produced mm-hmm. by Paramount Pictures, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and this was the time when you started getting, you know, uh, uh, the de-mythologizing Westerns like The Wild Bunch and McCabe and Mrs. Miller. You know, you were getting you know, musicals that were actually very dark and cynical, like Cabaret. Right. Uh, you, know, you were getting gangster films that weren't, you know, all fun and games with, right. you know, uh, uh, Jimmy Cagney or Edward G. Robinson going around uh, shooting people and being entertaining and fun. You know, instead you were getting the dark Corleone family. Yeah, the, the the real pain involved in in hit jobs and rubbing people out. It's not just rat a tat tat. It's it's agony. It's it's horror on both sides of the uh, killing. Mm-hmm. Right, and and this is basically you know uh, a way of deep uh, of demythologizing fairy tales. You know, yeah. saying you know some of these stories are actually really dark. You know, yeah, and and this one was you know uh, some historians speculate that the original kernel of truth that the Pied Piper builds off of was, you know, some mass murderer went into Hamlin and just mm-hmm. killed a bunch of children in the middle of the night because it yeah. starts out with just this talk about, oh, we lost all of our children, you know, all of our children were, you know, were taken from us. So, yeah. so you know, there's a dark side to this story and the film keeps that in mind. Yeah, yeah, there's a reason that the town commemorated whatever that event was. and There's a specific number, 130 children, that's kind of lingered through the telling of the tale for all these centuries. David, can we talk about the way the film is supposed to look? Because today yeah. I was looking at the documentary, The World of Jacques Denis, and in the section on the film, the scenes that they show are so vibrant in their color, it looked much better than the DVD that I saw. And I know you have the Blu-ray. 
Right. Uh, and I would say this Blu-ray does not show any evidence of meticulous restoration or anything. It, it feels very much like a, you know, a standard transfer that's just put onto the Blu-ray disc. But uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm not Mister Ultra, you know, video file there. But typically, Blu-rays look, you know, like they've had some work done on them. This the, this film did not, and and even the Blu-ray itself is is as bare bones as it gets. There's three trailers on the disc and not even a trailer for the Pied Piper. It's for three different movies that Kino happened to release right around the same time. So no commentary track, no supplements, no behind the scenes, no nothing. Um, And so, yeah. So what are your thoughts, Robert? Do you think that this probably... I was, I was awestruck. It it looks so vibrant and so alive. It looks like they look, it looks like ducky skin. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, which was you know, and and yeah, you take umbrellas, you take the, the young girls. I mean, those are just eye popping, marvelous, you know, visually dazzling, uh, you know, feasts for for the uh, for the eyes. So this this is not, and 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 I you know, to me, it felt like there was a deliberate choice made to to maybe desaturate the colors and to make it kind of dusty and grimy, and and a little bit you know bedraggled looking i mean you know there are colors you know the 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 bishop's garments and all the all the pomp and circumstance of the of the church hierarchy when they come in you know the reds are are popping and all of that but they're 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 more the exception than the rule the cinematographer was peter suschitsky who would go on to shoot the empire strikes back and he did uh, david cronenberg's dead ringers so he really? was yeah. really a top talent uh, in the uh, cinematography world. Yeah. This was one of his earlier films, but, but you know, uh, this wasn't a hack that they got. No, and, and and the the shots them, themselves are good. It's just I, it doesn't feel like they're they're playing up the kind of you know um, technicolor you know fluorescent eye candy that you might think of as a as a modern day fairy tale. The release in New York was so bizarre. It opened in New York at the bottom of a double bill with another yeah. film I think you're talking about in a couple of weeks. Uh, yeah. VPG. Yeah. That, that, this, this, it was released as the bottom or the second attraction <laughs> for that film. Yeah. We are going to be talking about ZPG. Actually, I'm going to do a, a two-for-one episode with Richard Doyle. He's one of my go-to genre specialty guys. Uh, ZPG stands for Zero Population Growth, and it's a kind of a dystopian science fiction film of the future. And then the other half of that episode will be a film called Hungry Wives, also released as Season of the Witch, an early film by George Romero. This is after he did Night of the Living Dead, but before he went on to some bigger and better things for which he's much more famous. So we're going to do a little sci-fi horror combo on our next episode. But yeah, the fact that this Pied Piper movie opened underneath what seems like a pretty (laughs) tacky and somewhat forgettable, but maybe slightly bonkers sci-fi spectacle. I mean, strange uh you know but double features were different then yeah go ahead vincent canby complained in his review in the new york times you know why is this film on the lower half of the double bill and why yeah. do the ads not even mention it was directed by jacques demi <laughs> that's the thing i mean this 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 does make it feel like demi had really kind of started you know a, a fairly steep decline M- maybe not when he was recruited to do this film but 
his his name and reputation just apparently did not carry much clout at least on the state side how did this do in europe as far as business was concerned it didn't actually come out in france until 75 right which was considered kind of a scandal and apparently a lot of the critics in france thought that the film was so political in terms of what was going on in france at the time mm-hmm. the kind of phobia that existed there as a result of uh, decolonialization in the 60s uh, with Algeria and the racism. Uh, You know, there's a sense, you know, in a way that that this story uh, has been turned into an allegory for the treatment of outsiders and the treatment of, of, you know, the big O other. And there was some talk that, you know, this film is kind of being suppressed. And it finally came out in 1975, which was pretty late for, you know. Well, I could I could see parents who brought their children just expecting a little bit of escapist family entertainment, feeling a bit discomforted and, and maybe, um, you know, kind of maybe almost regretting exposing their children yeah. to a story like this. Well, and I think if it was made today... You know, it would be released by like A24 and it would, you know, be, you know, they'd throw a little nudity in, they'd get an R rating, you know, and it might do pretty well. But, you know, after it played in some of the big cities on a double bill with uh, ZPG, it went out to the rest of the country. Maybe this is the the Saturday matinee release that Mm -hmm. Olian alluded to, but it was on a double bill in a lot of cities with Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. (laughs) (laughs) and it was after Willy Wonka had come out the second one on the double bill but it was like oh our kids love Willy Wonka let's take take them to see that again along with this new film yeah you know someone being burned (laughs) at stake and an 11 year old being forcibly married like a 30 year old John Hurt or whatever he was at the time yeah uh you know, that must have been a little bit shocking to people. It, it, it's funny because when you see stills of some of those sequences, you can't entirely glean the tone from them. And it's how they play in in reality. And I've, I've wondered this while watching the film, because um, having seen Model Shop as well, to what extent Demi's capacity with English um, affects a film like this, even just in terms of how he considers, you know, a take to be. I know there's a lot of ADR in this film, um, a whole lot. So when you're watching with headphones, you feel like everybody's right on top of you, even if they're far away. Very little of it is, is, you know, only certain scenes are going to be entirely sound on set. And I think that's usually because there's busy extras in the background of a lot of scenes. Um, But even some of Donovan's singing is live. Um, But there's there's a lot of uh, post-sync recording for this this film and a lot of times that gives an effect of something that's not entirely convincing uh pasolini considered that a strength he talked at once about the fact that he's like no i having the actors dubbing later in that that layer of of separation even in those cases maybe not even the same voice as the person who said it uh i get that feeling with some of these scenes particularly those shots i was mentioning from far back of like of um of Matteo, the, the the sort of minstrel dad, every line he says feels artificial to me in this weird way that I you could only really get um, in in a film where there maybe it's a a 
non-English speaking director watching the edit, approving which sinks, which sync takes are going to be going into the film. Model Shop has a similar distance to it, which works to the film's advantage because uh, Carrie Lockwood is the kind of brick wall that he is, and Anouk M.A., is playing a character that we've seen already that is meant to be transplanted from somewhere else. So it model shop, there's sort of this whole other level to it, but um, like you could see some of the scenes of Pleasance and Vaughn and hurt. And you might say, Oh, this is going to be a funny movie again, maybe in the vein of like the funny thing happened on the way to a forum where you have some strange setting that is uh, in an olden time, but this doesn't have the benefit of being based on like a Sondheim musical that it's going <laughs> right. to suddenly pop out right. at you. It, it like it, it ends up taking a much more dour turn, which dour is certainly a way I would describe model shop. So there may also be something about his emotional state um, that happened when they went over to California, him and, and Anya Sfarda, that is documented quite well in the documentary that Robert mentioned. And in fact, I want to bring some breaking news about that um, issue with quality. I just did a Blu-ray back-to-back comparison. And in fact, the images in the world of Jacques Demy, Anya Sfarda documentary are significantly better and clearer than the, the Blu-ray from Kino. Particularly hmm. because the, the the Kino Blu-ray tends to have a pulsing like light, especially in darker scenes where the color just keeps pulsing and pulsing. There is a slight difference uh, to getting completely um, anal about it, which is the uh, shots in the world of Jacques Demy are of a slightly more narrow aspect ratio. I mean, it's like an inch on either side of your television. And I just don't know if when that's a 1995 film, it looks really great, as Robert was saying. Like it's, it's, I, it's, I, I compared the shot of Donovan bringing the rats into the water. So I encourage anybody who has both copies to just do yourself a favor and check out what's in the Criterion disc. I don't know if when they restored this documentary, if they were restoring, you know, a 35 millimeter of this film, which includes shots of many other films, because there's generational loss may have been happening, but, or did they find a, a print of the film and then cut into this documentary, which I've seen Criterion do now and then where they'll, they'll cut in new restored footage of the footage that was being referred to in a certain documentary. This feels like they don't want to mess with what Anya's did. So they probably just did it all from this doc, which and is she may have had the access to those original sources that Kino never bothered to put together. Oh, for yeah, sure. Yeah. For sure. I, I, I guarantee you that, that she was consulted on, on placing that documentary in his box set and then eventually in her own box set. Um, so just something to tantalize us. This is a film that I think that clearly there's a better version of it. We could see, uh, I imagine. And what we see in that documentary, which was in fact the first I ever saw of this film and which made me perk up because I'd never heard of it when I watched that documentary years ago. Uh, you will get a taste of what this could look like if it got, if we got another whack at it. Cause I think it could use some love. Yeah. I mean, I, I would be delighted to see a, a full fledged criterion version of this film. I think there is, there's enough intrigue just, uh, again, we've sort of done a little bit of speculation. I don't think too wacky or irresponsible, but just kind of wondering, how did this all come about? And and that goes back to the cast, too. We've already riffed on a, a, a number of names that are just really just interesting, unique figures. Uh, Diana Doors, uh, kind of a 
a British pinup girl from the fifties. And, you know, she's, she's getting up in years a little bit here, but you know, again, the, the name Frau Poppendick. Well, that's an interesting. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's luxury casting. And again, I, I, I really appreciate that Dan brought up the star as a signifier yeah. aspect because she even gets a Diana doors as Frau Poppendick credit in the opening credits. Just yeah. to tell you, by the way, if you don't recognize her, if you, it's been yeah. a while since you've seen. She is a bit um, buried under her know, costume. An alligator named Daisy. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, if you haven't seen her since her 50s comedies, like, you'll see, they'll say, Frau Poppendick, and then there she is, and you go, oh, shit, that's Diana Doris. Don't forget and- Scent of Mystery. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that's really interesting to me, too, is the fact that even though I agree that if you were to see this in a really good, say, 35 millimeter print, you know, it would probably look gorgeous. Again, it would probably look like a, you know, uh, a painting at the Frick in New York, you know, one of those Dutch masters paintings. Uh, but of, but as you know, we, we all kind of know, you know, uh, auburns and browns and these kind of muted earth tones do not transfer very well to video. Right. You know, like bright saturated colors, you know, you can, like, you could watch, you know, the watch, uh, Wachowski sisters speed racer, you know, on on a, on a mediocre DVD copy and it would still look pretty, pretty good. Right. On a CRT TV. Right. Exactly. (laughs) But like, I always thought heaven's gate looked just horrible, the, the visuals. And then I finally saw a restored 35 millimeter print. Uh, at a film archive, you know, and all those auburn browns and yeah. everything looked gorgeous. Yeah. Like this probably looks gorgeous in thirty-five millimeter, yeah, rich and golden, and all of that. Yeah. And I think that you know, if they released it, say on you know four K now, you know, in Dolby Vision, you know, and you watched on a high def TV, it probably would look gorgeous too. But all that said, I also want to say that I think what's really interesting with this film is that Demi you know, is deliberately trying to kind of mute, you know, the so-called visual pleasure of the film, mm-hmm. you know, because this is the era of the 70s when feminist, you know, film theory, you know, develops the notion that, you know, visual pleasure is pernicious, you know, that it yeah. uh, objectifies women, that it glorifies property, that... You know, all of those kinds of things. You know, John Berger did that uh, BBC series, The Ways of Seeing, uh, mm. about that time, talking about the history of art and the way it uh, is corrupted by the ideologies of its time. Yeah, and you look at this film, and and unlike almost all the other Jacques Demy films, where you have you know people like Catherine Deneuve or uh, Nino Castelnuovo, you know, people who you know, we're just gorgeous, right? right? And you know, and, and someone could write a book on on the bisexual aesthetic of Jacques Demy because you know, whatever your sexual orientation is, there are people on that screen who are gorgeous that you mm-hmm. look at and just want to swoon yeah. because they're so beautiful. But not in this film. You're right. I mean, the a... only you look at you know, well, that person's really, really attractive is Keith Buckley, who plays Matteo. But, you know, as William points out, you know, he, like pretty much everyone else, you know, he doesn't get a close-up. You know, they don't photograph him in a way that makes him look 
you know, like a beautiful man, you know, nobody really looks attractive. They just all kind of, you know, like that kind of visual pleasure is just absent from the film. It's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, he's really kind of desexualized the film and the extent to which sex exists in the film is just as this kind of exchange between people, you know, well, even, and, yeah. And when you've got the priest character. out there just dogging the whole concept, it's like, <laughs> just kind of casts a shadow over the whole enterprise. Yeah. It's like, you know, nobody seems to want to have sex with anybody. Nobody seems really sexually attractive, you right. know, and that's not what you usually get from Jacques to me. You know, you get a lot of beautiful people, mm-hmm. you know, falling in love with each other. Yeah. So in a way, this is really kind of a dark and cynical kind of change of pace for to me. Well, we've we've got time here. I'm not trying to rush things down, but I do want to give a, a chance to talk about a, a contribution that Robert made through a, a video clip that he's shared. And I will have this uh, YouTube embedded in our show notes if you want to take a look at a different side or a different telling of the Pied Piper story. So, Robert, I'm going to give you a chance to introduce uh, the Pied Piper of Hamlin, uh, a 1957. Well, this was a really yeah. significant uh, event in my life. I was six years old. And this film introduced me to the music of Edvard Green. This was a made-for-TV. It was the first made-for-TV film. In the mid-50s, there was a series of musicals written for television. The first successful one was Roger Hammerstein's Cinderella with Julie Andrews, fresh from uh, My Fair Lady. But that was broadcast live. It could never be rebroadcast again. Then Cole Porter did a version of Aladdin with Sal Mineo and Anna-Marie Alberghetti, which wasn't successful. But the Pied Piper of Hamlin was unusual, that it was filmed, and it was filmed in technic, vibrant technicolor. So it, it played for the first time Thanksgiving week in 1957, and it was so successful, it was repeated the following year and then sold to, to a syndication. And what's interesting about this film is that it, uh, it, it's, entirely in verse. It uses Robert Brown, a lot of Robert Browning's uh, verses, and then it writes the rest of the script in imitation. It's a full-fledged musical, but all the music is based on the music of Edvard Grieg from the Pier, uh, from Pier Gint. Mm-hmm. And it had an all-star cast, Van Johnson and Jim Backus and Claude Rains, and then a popular singer of the time, K-Star. It was a big, elaborate production. And it really made a gigantic impression. It was my first exposure to the Pied Piper legend and mm-hmm. to the work of Edvard Grieg. But it takes a very different take on the story in that it has a happy ending. At the end yes. of the film, after the Pied Piper takes the children away, the people of the town then vow to spend the rest of their lives helping other children because the rat infestation is going all throughout Germany. And so when they decide to take all the guilders they've been saving to build a lavish um, tower gold, with golden chimes, they send the money away to help other children. And then the Pied Piper brings the children back and reunites them with their parents. That's the biggest change you know, in the story. But and that's a pretty big about, change, yeah. It is. But, yeah. but what's interesting is about the characterization of the Piper. Uh, mm-hmm. The first time we see the Piper in this version He's in a tree and he slithers down the tree like a snake. And then when he gets on <laughs> yeah. his feet, he begins to dance and make different magical things happen. And in the film, I mean, he, he's 
he alternates from being sinister to being kindly with the children, and you really don't know really how how to take him at the uh, at the end. It's, well, it's there's a very kind of unusual. An, yeah, there's kind of an emperor's new clothes thing going on where the children can hear the music, but the adults can't. You know, so it's like the Pied Piper is kind of on this unique wavelength that only the children really understand. I mean, it is a obviously this is a 1957 family oriented Thanksgiving weekend, you know, Technicolor spectacular on TV, which, you know, was was pretty well established by that point. But certainly not everybody had color TV back then. And it was uh, it looks like it must have been a pretty big deal, you know, to get the names that you've already cited. Um, it certainly has a bit of its schmaltzy, you know, somewhat corny uh, aspects now, but I found it pretty entertaining. William, I know you were already doing some uh, gift magic <laughs> with it today. Oh my God, it's so good. <laughs> yeah. I love this. I, was, yeah. I didn't know, I don't know how I didn't know about it, but I didn't. So thanks, Robert, for bringing it to my attention because, yeah, looking it up, it's like, well, this is a, this is a major historical event. Uh, it has so much... Oh, gosh. It has so much in common with pantomimes, too, like a holiday pantomime, which often are in verse and have like a happy ending like this, where even the villain, you know, will play the the, the pipe at the end and be part of the side of good. Um, It came out, 57 is also the year of a very interesting television broadcast to me, which I'll plug briefly, but this made me think of it in a new light. I know it's a tangent of a tangent, but there's a... Uh, a live musical um, video cast of, uh, of The Yeoman of the Guard by Gilbert and Sullivan starring Barbara Cook, Celeste Holm, and Alfred Drake. That is probably my favorite performance of the piece, even though it's abridged. And it is you know, done in the live style, which requires a lot of careful uh, camera movements to get from one scene to the next and some narration. But the key about that film, though it was shot on video, it was originally transmitted in color and the color version does not survive. Considering that this uh, Pied Piper film, though shot on film, is mostly in a similar kind of soundstage, it did give me a slight idea of like what types of colors and costumes that Yeoman film probably was em- em- employing to get its point across for a, an audience who was lucky enough in 57 to have a color TV. And both of these films, I mean, are using classical music as their basis. One is a is a classical operetta and one is using all of this Greek music pretty faithfully to the point that when the Hall of the Mountain King finally shows up. It's the original orchestration, pretty much cut and dry. And the implementations of Grieg songs that maybe didn't originally have a vocal melody, giving them a vocal melody are quite brilliant. So I think as a, as a, as a like, sung musical and a piece of classical music for the, the home, it, it was very exciting to see this because it unlocked a piece of the puzzle for me, having sort of approached it from another side, watching the black and white surviving copy of the Yeoman of the Guard, which I, I highly recommend. Um, the uh, the copy of the Pied Piper of Hamelin on YouTube is incredibly bright. I watched a copy, I got it from the library as well, that the film detective put out, which is much more muted. And I also checked the one on Paramount Plus, which is the same muted copy. It looks to me like there may have been some goosing of the saturation, but I don't think that hurts the film on the YouTube copy. Uh, I, I could only imagine what this looked like on a TV in 1957. But watching it on an HD television today, the saturated copy on YouTube is is fine by me because when Van Johnson makes that rainbow, it looks like a rainbow. (laughs) And I I would be glued to the television as a kid watching it. And you get to see Claude Rains sing and dance, and I I got no problem with that. When they released it in theaters, they did like they do with Gone with the Wind. They cut the top and bottom off to make it look like Cinemascope. (laughs) (laughs) And they souped up the sound, yeah. But it it wasn't successful in theaters, though. 
No, this is a watch at home on TV type of thing. Another version I can recommend <laughs> is the uh, Shelley Duvall fairy tale theater version. I watched it for the first time yesterday, and it's really disturbing. The Eric Idle version <laughs> of the Pied Piper okay. is terrifying. Oh, Shelley Duvall and Eric Idle. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can imagine they could work some dark magic with the Pied Piper. <laughs> uh, there was a scene in that version that reminds me of a scene yeah. in the Demi film. Uh, one of the highlights to me is the scene when Jack Wilde uh, goes to the Piper and says something about, you know, uh, uh, his uh, his affliction, his handicap. Yeah. And the Piper just says, "Well, what's wrong with you?" Like he does, he makes very very light of Jack Wilde's plight. And but in the Eric Idle version, they have the same scene. The crippled boy goes and asks the Piper to help him, and the Piper says. You have to realize something about reality. Some things are never going to change, like your leg. Wow. And he walks away. It's, and it gets and it goes downhill from it gets even darker from there. So <laughs> if you haven't seen it, I recommend to take a look at it. Where do you find that, Robert? I the just found it on I just called it on uh, YouTube. I just Okay, it so it is a, it is on YouTube, okay? Uh-huh. Fantastic. All right. Well, this is probably the time we can start wrapping up our conversation. I've really enjoyed it. You've all brought some very interesting thoughts and observations, and uh, hopefully you've all had a good time uh, both participating in the conversation and for listeners. Uh, yeah, uh, this is, like I say, kind of a an overlooked nugget from Demi's career, but I think one that uh, holds up well under scrutiny and uh, would love to see a more authoritative uh, edition come to our uh come to our shelves somewhere down the road whether it's criterion or some other label i think even kino could do a little bit better job than what they did with this one but i'm glad we've had it and i'm glad we've had a chance to uh you know analyze it just a little bit here so let's go through the uh the the, the guest here just give us a uh any any last words you might have to say about the film and maybe if you want to say anything about where people can uh, apprise any of your contributions to social media or anything like that uh, just give you a chance to close things out. So, uh, William, why don't you go ahead and start us off? Uh, anything happening with the opera company these days? Or are we still waiting for normal to resume at some point? Mostly, mostly waiting. Yeah. I, um, I have, I'm doing a solo concert of Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, songs that will break records for the most amount of words sung in one evening by one person. And I'm looking forward to that. We're doing 46 songs in an hour and 40 minutes. Wow. Uh, by by eliminating as many applause breaks as possible and letting the last note of one song be the first note of the next and trying to see what records we could break. And I'll be throwing some heavy metal guitar into the ghost scene from Ruddigore <laughs> that I think uh, will will go quite nicely at the Gilbert and Sullivan Society. Um, and otherwise, yeah, for the opera company itself, uh, I'm waiting just a little bit longer for some things to, to cook up, but I have some some gigs in the calendar for some outdoor concerts in the horizon and my usual summer in England should, should happen without issue performing over there. Uh, otherwise I, uh, I working on a, my next record of solo music and working on some experimental film projects that I'm trying in vain to get someone to fall for and put in one of their festival programs. So uh, just just keep it busy and trying to watch as many movies as possible. Well, love the update and definitely let's let's make sure you get back on here uh, before ten more months have passed. Okay, we'll do. All right, uh, Robert, tell us a little bit about uh, you know any final thoughts you've got or uh, anything you want to say about how people can connect with you uh, on social media or just how life is going for you these days as you're enjoying well, retirement. Oh, life is great. I've never been uh, as busy. 
I just came uh, off of doing two productions. I started a arts initiative at our church. So we did a great big concert uh, tribute to Alan J. Lerner a few months ago. Mm. And then we did a production of Archibald McLeish's adaptation of The Devil and Daniel Webster. And now I'm working on a big tribute to Anthony Newley and Leslie Griffiths uh, for an April concert. So I'm uh, keeping the creative juices flowing. After my that is 50 great. 50-year career as a, as a teacher. So life is good. All right. Well, I'm glad to hear that, Robert. And look forward to having you on somewhere down the road. And then Dan, yeah, tell us a little bit about. You know, you mentioned a couple of works that you've published. Um, you know, how can how can uh, uh, listeners kind of get a little bit more in contact with what you're doing out there? Well, first of all, let me plug someone else's book. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> uh, because you know she actually deserves some credit for some of the things that I've said here uh, on this episode. Uh, a professor at Wayne State University, Anne E. Duggan, wrote a book called Queer Enchantments, Gender, Sexuality, and Class in the Fairy Tale Cinema of Jacques Demy. Wow. And a I read whole her book. Chapter, okay, yeah. Yeah, I read her chapter on on the Pied Piper the other night to prepare for this. And, you know, some of the most interesting things I've said today actually come from her book. Okay. So, Credit words to do. That's uh, great. Plagiarize her work. Uh, but, but it's a great book. You know, she has a chapter on donkey skin. Uh, she has chapters on, uh, the umbrellas of Cherbourg, uh, Lady Oscar, a really obscure Demi film. So if, if you, if you love Demi and you love a side of him that kind of dabbles in fairy tales and fantasy, you know, that's a wonderful book. It's called Queer Enchantments. Uh, and I'll, I'll get a link for that in the show notes, just so if people want to follow up on that. <laughs> uh, great, because uh, again, it's a wonderful book. And you know, I'm just uh, I'm working on another Ingmar Bergman project, uh, uh, an anthology of essays by different scholars from around the world, all dealing with all different aspects of Ingmar Bergman's film career. So, uh. So trying to cement my reputation as a Bergman scholar. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I've got two books out. Uh, the, the one, Queer Bergman, which everyone thought I was insane when I said I was writing a book claiming there's queer content in Ingmar Bergman. Because as my dissertation advisor said, I can think of nobody in the world more heterosexual than Ingmar Bergman. <laughs> <laughs> you obviously must have hit a nerve there. Yeah. Uh, well, no, he uh, he just, you know, he remembered all those things like scenes from a marriage, oh, you know, I, yeah, yeah. Holman fighting with, <laughs> you know, Wilson for six hours on PBS. All <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, I've been gratified. A lot of people are like, yeah, you know, I've never really thought of, the, you know, the weird kind of queer undertones in, in Bergman films before, uh, you know, except maybe Persona. But, but Queer Bergman and then my newer book on Pasolini, Archaic Modernism, you know, are out there to buy if anyone's yeah. interested. And we just had Pasolini's uh, centennial there, his 100th anniversary of his birth. Just uh, was it last week? I believe it was, right? Yeah, just a few, like three days ago, two or yeah. three days ago. So uh, very, very timely there. So, yeah, it's like uh, it's a good deal for me to have just written a book on Pasolini right before the centenary. Yeah. I just got an email saying, you know, We'll fly you up to Chicago if you want to talk about Pasolini in October. So I'm like, 
went on a free trip to Chicago because I just happened to write this book. Excellent. Uh, That's good. So now they say you don't make any money in academia, but if you play your cards right, you can get free trips to a lot of college campuses. Yeah, the perks. Not, not too shabby there. Excellent. Well, good. Well, I'm going to just give a little uh, preview. I've already mentioned the next episode, the ZPG and Hungry Wives. And I'm also going to be recording a new episode with my friend Trevor Barrett and our Inside the Box podcast, where we're going to be talking about actually starting a three-part series on the World Cinema Project Volume 1. We're going to break this six film set into three episodes covering two films each we'll be talking about tukibuki and redis the first two films uh, on disc one of that uh, really beautiful volume there and we'll probably be working through our other world cinema projects down the road but that's a that's a series where trevor and i talk about the box sets and the criterion collection so that'll be the next thing i do podcasting wise and i'll get to the zpg hungry wives a little bit after that. Uh, for listeners who've hung in this long, I definitely want to just encourage you to support our CriterionCast.com website. Uh, this is nothing that I profit from personally, but it does keep the site up and running, and Ryan Gallagher does a fantastic job of maintaining all of that. So uh, definitely if you want to throw a few pennies our way, we really appreciate any gestures of support to keep the website going and uh, bring all this podcast wonderful conversation to you free of charge so thank you again for listening everybody uh robert dan and william it's been a real pleasure so thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your hearts with us tonight and we will see y'all next time bye-bye i come from a land of windy wonder born in stormy evening under great green oaks by the mountain craggy hair fell blue and the bracken crackly not very many of you know my name and not very many of you guess my game i'm known to some by the name of piping peter peace when the piper plays and people call me the pie piper. People call me the pie piper. People call me the pie piper. La 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 la. I come from a land of windy wonder, born on a stormy evening under great green oaks by the mountain craggy. Not very many of you know my name. Not very many of you guess my game. I'm known to some by the name of Piping Peter Beast and the